I would like to turn with you to Acts chapter 2, and we'll be looking at this uh, passage. We've been looking at the church and seeing how the church um, is a moving, so to speak, a moving animal. If you want to uh, understand how an animal is, you don't look at a stuffed animal when it's not alive or it's not moving. You want to see it as it is happening in real time. And what we've been doing is that we've looking at been looking at the church as it was being birthed, as it was forming in real time, so to speak. And so the 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 the, the book of Acts is a great place to look at it, so you can observe how it moves, how the Holy Spirit moves, and how the Holy Spirit changes the people and the church that's in there. Um, it's one thing to be able to talk about the church from an abstract point of view. It's another, quite another thing to actually see the church in motion. And so, um, sometimes what, what can actually happen is that we look at a stuffed animal and we try to find out every, 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 everything that we can, missionary and stuffed dead animal, and we actually don't get a right proper picture. But Acts gives us a picture of that. So I'd like to go into a little, it a little bit more uh, as we look at Acts chapter 2. And... Um, Note one thing in verse 5 in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came and rested upon each person, verse 5 says, Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in in, in Jerusalem. So there were devout Jews. And here comes a devout man to help me. No, this is good. Anything. Okay, oh, I see. It's interfering here. Okay, good. All right. So there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And so these were a certain kind of people. There were lots of people there. There are thousands of people, but they were devout. Okay, they were devout. Now that's really interesting because um, as you listen to their response to Peter's message, you will see that their response was to something very real, something very specific. They were a certain kind of people. They were devout. That means they were looking for God. They were not looking for success. They were not looking for the American dream. They were looking. They were not look, looking for Christ to make their life more uh, better. They were devout. That means they were looking for God. Now, they were Jews, and they were scattered over different parts of the uh, the world, there's a whole long list of the, the nations or, 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 or people groups that they were part of, but they were Jews. And so they were actually coming back for the feast. And as they were coming back, you have to assume that they had a deep and long and historic yearning for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Their history over the new over the period of the New Testament as well as the intertestamental intertestamental period was a was a history of tremendous frustration, tremendous disappointment. Number one, that the Messiah had not come, that the end of the age had not come, that the promise that the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and in doing that, cause them to be a people who would teach the world Torah. You have to imagine the deep longings that these people had 
so that when Peter spoke to them, he didn't speak to their longing to be famous or to be um, well-known or to be rich or to be great in any way. He was speaking about a longing that was long-standing, that was deeper than any of these more contemporary likes and things that we, we are looking for to make our mark in the world, or so, so to speak. They were not about that. You don't find that in the Old Testament. You don't find that in the values of the Old, Old Testament saints. You don't have that sort of, I'm going to make my mark in this world. I'm going to be a person who, has, who, 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 who people will remember. I'm going to be a Churchill. I'm going to be a this. I'm going to be that. I'm going to be a, a great person. You don't have that. That's not actually a category. It doesn't mean that people did not become great, but that was not the thing that they were looking for. They were devout in the sense that they were looking for the Holy Spirit. They were looking for the desire of nations, which Haggai spoke about. And Haggai had spoken about the fact that one, one day, once, once more, I'm going to shake the heavens and, 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 and the desire of nations will come and fill this house with His glory. And the house, the greater glory, the, the house of the latter, the latter house will be greater than the former house in terms of its glory, its content of glory. And so you have to understand that the devout people that were coming to Jerusalem we're not actually looking for the kind of things that many times Christians and churches are offering. They were not looking for a better um, life coach. They were not looking for God to empower them more so that they can do their great things. They were actually looking for God. And in so far as they were looking for God, they had tremendous yearnings, longings, and disappointments that they were holding in their hearts. Okay, so, so what we have is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what shocked them was not so much the fact that there, were, there was a great sermon that was going on, but the fact that when the Holy Spirit came, they heard miraculously this bunch of Galileans that they probably despised, they were not the, the, this bunch of Galileans who were not cosmopolitan, they were very localized, very, 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 uh, so to speak, hick. And they, and they were speaking the words of God and singing the praises of God and there were messages from God that were being spoken in, in languages that these people from the international community could understand. It's hard to even, even describe the impact of that, because what they were seeing was something supernatural. And they recognized something about that. Not that they have ever seen, seen it, but they had been brought up, educated by the rabbis and educated by the Old Testament, to look forward to the new age, the age in which God will bring His kingdom and there will be a change. There will be a change not only in the in the nation, but it will be changed inside them. Okay? So they were struck by that, they were disturbed by that, and they asked, what does this mean? Even the people who said these people were drunk, they, were, they had this, this, this kind of casual contemptuousness, they were still devout. They just interpreted that thing wrongly, that's all. And so, but you got to understand that what they were looking for, that is something that has some that 
that is connected with the way in which the church was built, was, was birthed. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when, and, and the rabbis had, had, had actually told them for generations and generations, okay, in the oral tradition, that there will be a sign in which the, the Messiah will come back, the kingdom of God will come, when there will be a total reversal of what happened in the Tower of Babel, when in the Tower of Babel, all their languages were fragmented and fractured, and they would be scattered throughout the whole earth, and they would not be able to understand each other because they would have different, different, different languages. The rabbis told them, and, and, and they, 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 they referred back to Moses, when he said, everybody will be a prophet. Uh, I would God that everybody will be a prophet. He, they spoke to, they, 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 they referred back to the fact that when, when Moses spoke and God spoke from the, from the, from the mountain, the, the word of God went to every part of the earth. That's rabbinic tradition. And so when they heard the, the tongues, they were thinking in their hearts, is this? What the rabbis are talking about? Is this that? That thing? Is it really happening? Is it, is this the thing that the rabbis were speaking about? And they got tuned in. They got excited. And so when Peter comes in and he speaks and said, this is that which this prophet had been spoken to. The rabbis call it the Pesha formula. Yeah? It's the Pesha formula. It's, the formula goes like this. This is that. This is that. What they were saying is this. This is that which the prophets were prophesying about. So when Peter was saying, this is that, he's speaking directly into their, their longings, their fears, their, their, their disappointments, and their, and their hope that the, what the rabbis said and, and what Moses had prophesied would really come to pass when Moses said, oh, that all of us will prophesy, well, every, all of Israel will prophesy. What they were saying is this, could it be that the kingdom of God has come? Is that thing that we've been looking forward to all these years for hundreds and hundreds and actually thousands of years, that this would actually happen? The Pesha formula. The Pesha formula is a formula that is a, is, is a formula that's, that refers to a certain prophetic eschatological kind of uh, uh, hope. This is that which Prophet Omar said. This is that when prophets, the Prophet Amos speaks about the fact that we'll be the, we'll, 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 the, the Lord will, will roar like a lion and who can but prophesy? This is that. This is that. This is that. You get what I'm talking about? And what was happening is this, as they hear the, heard the people speaking in tongues in their own language, they were saying, is that that? Is this that? And Peter gets up and he says, this is that. This is that. Isn't that amazing? But you've got to understand that, the, that there's, there's, there's a mixture of hope, disappointment, longing, yearning, heartbreak. All that, that was in all, the, in all their desires. They were not here like many of us moderns who are wanting to have a great life or, or, have, or, or, or hear the gospel so that they could have be, better um, um, well-being. They were not here so that they could have more peace in their life. Not that they will be more successful, they'll be more rich, they'll be more whatever, they'll be more um, um, a fulfilling of their dreams and all that. They're not about that. That's not what they were interested in. They were saying, we want the kingdom of God. We understand that we are hopeless. We cannot fulfill God's purposes. But their hopes were 
were fueled. Even as they were dashed, they were fueled by the prophets. Uh, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 31, I'm sure many of you know that very well, Jeremiah 31, um, God speaks about a new covenant that would that would be coming through, through, through Jeremiah verse 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will not, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant that they broke. A covenant that they broke. What God was saying is this. You're a covenant people. I've called you out. And the covenant was this. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will cause you to be not the head, not the, but the tail. Uh, not the tail, but the head. I will cause you to be a blessing. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, will curse. I will cause you to be a multitude of nations that will come out of you. All these blessings that were coming. And, and Jeremiah was saying is, you could not fulfill. Because there's something inside you that's so broken. That's so broken, that's so um, distorted, that's so filled with sin that you have to know this, that this is an impossible covenant to keep. But Jeremiah looked forward to the time when there would come a time in which something would happen and there would be a change. Is this that? They were saying. And the prophet said that it's only the coming of the Holy Spirit that will come and change us. Change the nation of Israel. Amen? And so he says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, but Jeremiah 31, verse 33. In the last days, in those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, but they shall all know me. What he was saying is this, a new covenant would be such that when the Spirit comes, there will be knowing in the heart. An intuitive knowing that doesn't come just by data, but by the Spirit's revealing Christ, revealing God in their hearts. Isn't that amazing? Jeremiah is speaking about the fact that this is the covenant that they broke. They couldn't do it. But there will come a time in which the Spirit of God will come and He will cause knowing to happen in their heart. I'll put my laws in their heart. I'll put them and uh, put, put knowing into them and they will not teach each other saying, ah, you've got to know the Lord, but you will know the Lord. Isn't that amazing? The, the Jews that were there in Jerusalem understood both their, their, their aspirations as well as their aberrations. They understood their faults as well as their hopes. And they knew that only God could actually break the impasse or break the, 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 the stalemate that had caused them to be a people of hope, hankering after God's, God's promise, and yet knowing that they that could not in themselves fulfill that. So this is, this is what's happening in the birth of the church. We're talking about not a birth into prosperity, not a birth into some of the modern, postmodern kind of uh, values that, that uh, so much uh, uh, desire and has become the agenda today. We're talking about something that's completely different. It's a completely different agenda that the, that the, the Jews in Jerusalem had. They wanted to know God. They wanted to have God. They want the Messiah to come. They want the kingdom of God to come. They didn't want their own kingdom. They didn't care about that. 
They were not wanting to be great individualists who will, who, who, who will do great things. That's not what they were in, about. That would come as a consequence of it, but that would not be the thing that they're going for. They're wanting God. They wanted God. They were devout Jews who wanted God. So I want to put it to you that this message that, that Peter's pro- preach was not just a message for people who are looking for something else other than God. They were looking for God. And that becomes the, the brewing thing that causes the church in its hunger, desire, its longing, and its yearning to be birthed into a whole place of different place of power, a whole different nature than, uh, um, uh, than, than, than a church in which it's more like, you know, we know you love these things and God has these things for you. Come to God and, he'll, and you get all these things. But really, those things are all the things that you want. It's not about self-fulfillment or it's not self-actualization because if the message is not, I know you want to be self-actualized, but guess what? God, Jesus will make you self-actualize. That was not the message. The whole way it came from was completely different. Even though we, are, we only can be self-actualized in ourselves in God. Okay, let's have a look. Let, let's keep looking at it. Um, and so Peter addresses the crowd. And uh, basically he's saying this. This that you see is what you've been looking for. And so he says in the last days, verse 17, this is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel, or in my NRSV, it says, no, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. That's the Pesha formula, yeah? In the last days it will be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves... Both men and women, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so he says, this is the thing. This is that. This is what Joel has spoken about. May I suggest to you that the birth of the church Focus on the coming of the Holy Spirit. The longing for the Holy Spirit. Not longing for a, a, a community in which everybody will fall on one another. No, that, that's, that's actually not bad. <laughs> because we, we are supposed to love one another. We are supposed to care for one another. We are seeing in these past few months, tremendous things happening uh, in, in, our, in our congregation where needs are being met by each other. That's wonderful. But the point about the, 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 the church here is the coming of the Spirit. The coming where the Holy Spirit comes and meets all our brokenness, the covenants that we have broken with God, the, our t- utter inability to live at God's highest. And so, it's wonderful. He talks about this, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Wow. I remember when I saw Joel, that Joel passage, when I was in my teens, maybe 19 years old. I've been brought up in the Brethren Church, my parents and my, my, uh, my, my, my relatives were very godly people. Very, very godly people. And, uh, but the brethren didn't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so we tried our very best to live the best that we can. And really the Bible was like a, like a, the good book, right? The book that we follow, like a instruction manual for living. 
But we all knew the dryness. We knew the inability that we had to live the Christian life. And as I grew older and older, and I went to college, I realized there was this dirty little secret that we had among us. Not dirty in the in the in the in the in the um, in, in the in the dirty dirty sense, but the secret that we all talk about what the Bible says, but we don't really believe it or experience it. And when the Bible talks more and more about miracles and about living the victorious Christian life and overcoming sin, overcoming flesh and the devil, we did our best. We really did our best. And more more than anyone, my parents, I could see them, I could see the righteousness there. But there was something decidedly dry about their spiritual life. There was something decidedly grinding about it that made me come to a place where I felt I don't think we really admit to ourselves that what the Bible promises us is something we are experiencing. We fall short, but we somehow created a theology in which our theology is cut cut according to our falling short. Cut smaller, cut more diminished, more humanly possible. And so the more and more we live that life, we cut our expectations and our Christian life according to what was doable as Christians. So there was this understanding that the Bible uses very exaggerated languages, extreme hyperbole about how great the the exceeding greatness of His power to usward. Remember Paul speaks about that? That you will know the exceeding greatness of His power to usward. When we, brethren, read that, we think, yes, well, let's just be good. Let's try to be good at at best, right? And that's the best that, I mean, my parents were about about as good as you could get. I've not seen others better than them. And then the charismatic movement came. And when it came, the very ones who were the leaders, including my parents, were intrigued by it. And when it came to KL, Kuala Lumpur, it swept like a mighty wind and the first people who responded to the Holy Spirit was my family. My parents, my mom's 11 siblings, plus my grandparents, plus all those who are in the church who are part of them. A movement of God, thousands, literally thousands of people started pouring in to the baptism of the Holy People who were leaders, and, all, and the leaders were the first ones to actually come before God very humbly and say, I don't know anything. The Holy Spirit, I'm so dry. I'm so full of dryness and yearning. I'm willing to lose my reputation, and my parents did. They did. They were kicked out of the Brethren Church, and, they, and, uh, and I remember the day that we were praying together in my house, and the Lord spoke a prophecy to them church will be built in this in this house itself. And my parents started a church. It grew from 30 to 60 to 120 in three weeks. And then my parents decided to break down all the walls. We had a very big house. We had a six-bedroom six bungalow. And we bro- broke down the, 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 the walls in the house. And then we broke, and then we opened up the, 
the, the, the sliding doors outside. So we had people inside as well as outside. We had 300 people in my house. Within the next month, we, they moved to a, a shop lot and they had two services. And they were already having 800 people, all within about two or three months. They moved to the, they moved to the Hotel Majestic and then there were thousands. And then they moved and they moved. And all this, and you should see my parents. My parents were like children. All the leaders that we, we, we respected who were, you know, the brethren now famous for being good at the word. They know the word very, very well. But here they were people dry as a bone and now filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were dancing, they were laughing, they were seeing miracles. Every day in my house, we saw people doing, coming demon-possessed, filled with diseases, and they would be healed. We see miracles every, every, every day. Every day. And that's no exaggeration. Because I'm not talking about one a day. I'm talking about several a day, 10, 12 a day in our house. My parents could, had no time to sleep. My, on, from my side, there were people who are, who, are, who, are, who are on drugs, on heroin, who would sleep in my very small room. There was one time we had six in a room, you know, all sleeping on one bed and then, and, and then me on the floor and trying to, try, trying to get delivered. And there were all these very, very exciting things that were happening. But what I really saw, that the thing that really struck me was how my parents were transformed. They are not ungodly people, but they were transformed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. My, 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 temper, my dad's temper, it disappeared. Disappeared. Children know their parents' foibles deeply, <laughs> intimately. So I knew when the change took place in my, my, my parents' life, it would be, it would be completely uh, uh, real. I, when I was growing up in the Brethren Church, was against things of the Spirit. I felt very uncomfortable with people who spoke in tongues. I thought they were they're wet. They're, they're like like a like a like a rag. Whenever they put, I shook hands with them. I felt like I was shaking head with a maggot. I just felt ugh, because they were so emotional. It just made me feel the heebie-jeebies because of the fact they were raising their hands, emotional, and all that. We brethren were dry as a bone, clean, dry. You know, when Jesus comes back, the brethren will be the first one to rise, you know, because the dead in Christ will rise first. <laughs> Sorry. We saw the coming of the Holy Spirit. The kind of response that I'm trying to talk about is the kind of response that devout and dry and disappointed and yearning people have when the Spirit comes. It's not the same. Not the same as the kind of evangelistic preaching that causes people who really want Christ to help them to get on with life. It was a different kind of thing. And I tell you, I believe we as a church can experience that kind of outpouring that causes the church to be built in apostolic spirit. The church that Christ is coming back for is not a church in its pajamas. It's not weak and anemic. It will be the church was born in apostolic power. But you've got to understand 
that it was not some message that would help us to self-actualize. It was actually the non-actualization of us and it is the actualization of Christ in the midst of us so that we are not the center of it, we are not the locus of God's power, but we are on the periphery of it, so much so that we are fed by it. Yeah? And so this is, this is enough said about that, okay? Let's talk, let, let, let's go further. And then Peter says, Jesus has been proven to be the Messiah because of his miracles. And the miracle that you see now proves that which you have been looking for has been actualized right here in your midst. And he talks about that. And everybody's getting excited. And then he points the finger. But you crucified him. And Peter tells, tells us how to do our devotions, you know. He doesn't say, wow, the promise has come to pass. This is God's going to be doing this. He always does this. But this is what's preventing you from experiencing the good of it. Question two, those of you who know 4Q. This is what God has for you, the plumbing of the Spirit. Question one, we ask God. This is what God has for us. Question two, what's preventing me? What's preventing me? Why is it God promises all this and I'm still not experiencing it? If you want to have a grip of the Word of God and let the Word of God have you, you've got to ask that question. And Peter asked that question. Or he answered that question. But you crucified him. We won't have time to, to, to go into it. But let's go to the end of it and see what their response is. Okay, So verse 37, when they heard this, okay, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Given the fact that we are hopeless, we can't, we've not been able for thousands of years to live up to God's, God's covenant, which we broke. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32. Repent. <laughs> what should we do? Peter says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, that when he says that, the thing about all that thousands of years of Scripture in its oral form, and then its written form, it's everything, which comes together, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will no longer be stumbling in your Christian life dry, but you will have the Holy Spirit. Repent. Repent means change of mind, but more than just an intellectual thing. Repent means this, um, disassociating yourself from the mindset of the world. Disassociating yourself from not just the values of the world, but the roots of those values from the, the things, the morality, the ethics, the, the good, the values that are rooted not in God, but in atheism or in godlessness or in our own self. Repent. And so there are two things that I'd like to, sh- to, 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 to focus on in Peter's... Um, Peter's message in his answer to them, and I'm going to read it. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Yeah, very simple. Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. For the promise is for you, verse 39, for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. And so those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. I'd like us to just focus on, on this, because this is the approach that brought to birth a church that was authentic, that was real. First he said, repent. Repent has to do with the changing, a radical change in the whole structure of our minds, the whole, the whole attitude of our hearts, okay? And I think there's something that this speaks to that perhaps may answer some of our questions about why ministry has failed in your observation or in your own life or even in our lives. There are failed ways that uh, come to mind. And I'm going to speak about three or four of them. Okay, The first one is, what Peter was saying is this, this change in your heart that you need comes only when a more radical work is done in you. You'll need the Holy Spirit, but you need something more than that. It is not enough for, for us today to think that the reason why people are being put off by Christianity is just that Christianity is too harsh, it's too judgmental, it's too unaccommodating and too uninclusive. It's too judgmental, it's too whatever. It is not enough. Because... If you change all that, it will still not transform a life. I've talked to many people who have an ought against the church. They have a, they have a grumble against the church and they feel that the church, this person has been hurt by the church. No doubt, no doubt. But the corollary is that doesn't, doesn't follow that if the church changes and becomes more welcoming and be more culturally sensitive or it is less traditional, it will solve the problem. No, it's not enough. It's not enough to create a nice atmosphere or a loving atmosphere and a welcoming atmosphere to transform lives. That can go some way and it can help welcome people and cause perhaps people not to run away from the church. But it's not enough. There is, it's possible for us to have this idea of transformation as based upon welcome. Welcome is an important first start, first start. But that doesn't transform. Only the cross does. Only the Holy Spirit does. And so what happens is this, we think that because of the fact that if we are very, very positive and we are very, very non-judgmental, people will change. No, it won't change. The desire of the nations will still be an unfulfilled desire. It will still be the same as we, are, we were before, whether people are judging you or not judging you. So let's not stay shallow. We accept the point. That the church needs to be more welcoming and it needs to be more inclusive, it needs to be all that. But we are not we are not fooled 
by the idea that if we are just nice, people will be transformed. Amen? We need to repent of that. Change the mind. The second thing has to do with the fact that it is not pumped up speech that will change people. It's not inspiring pumped up speech that will, that will focus on the fact that we are able to do great things or that we are, if we are more disciplined or we have a more positive, positive attitude or if we are more, you know, gung ho about things or if we have more um, um, backbone and, and things, and we have we have a much more, and some people call it a masculine spirit. I don't know what that is. Think people are going to get better. Many ministries are built upon the pump up, inspiring kind of thing. You can do better than that. A little bit of wit, cracking of the wit, a, a little bit of 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 of, uh, of inspirational kind of kind of thing. You are kind of you should be better than that. I find them bracing. I actually enjoy it. But I'm not under any uh, illusion that that is actually going to transform me. Because it doesn't deal with the old man. The old person of sin. It's speaking to this old person and saying, old person, you can be better than that. And if you have a gospel that doesn't address the fact that I am filled with sin, I am diseased inside me, and I'm bent out of shape, I will not be able, no matter how many times I come to church on Sunday, and no matter how many times I play the, the, the CDs of this very inspiring talk, which is all true, I will not be changed because the old man, the old person of the flesh, the old body of sin, cannot change itself. You cannot repair it. You can't medicate it. You have to kill it. And good news is that Christ killed it on the cross. And this is where I don't believe that we as a church can just speak in inspiring messages that tell people, you can be better than that. You're better than that. You're better than that. Yes, you are. But it's not the old man. It's the new man. And so what I find is that a lot of times we can actually try to inspire people but not bring the cross. And as, and as a result of that, we will actually wonder why we need to be pumped up all the time. It is not enough to focus on the greatness. We have to focus on the fact that we are wracked with flaws and with, with, uh, with, um, with fissures in our soul. But we don't need to avoid that, see? We don't need to consider that as, an, as, as a as a negative message because the more, most positive thing has happened that Christ took upon himself our sin nature. It's more positive than any positive message you can give or receive. It is that Christ dived deep into the deepest depths of your, of your darkness and pulled it out. Pulled it out and put it upon himself so much so that you can look down the deepest deepest depths of your soul and find that it's not there anymore. It doesn't get more positive than that. But the church has missed out on what Christ has done, the finished work of Christ, and as a result of that, it is avoidant of our aberrations. It's avoidant of our darkness. And as a result of that, 
you have a semi-positive word. No matter how positive you can sound, it is not as positive as what Christ has done. And so, you don't find Peter, you don't find the New Testament writers talking that way. A message that wants to transform cannot also focus on personality types and the strong points of the worst personality type and the weak points of the personality type. Do not take comfort in the fact that you're an INTJ or you're a whatever, an 8 or a, or a 1 or, or a 2 or a 5 or whatever. Don't take comfort in that because these are structures of personality. What Christ came to do is not to keep us within those trappings. But He came to set us free from that. And you have to die. Only if you die will these things actually blossom. Amen? We can get trapped by our own positivity which is based upon limited paradigms. And so, I want to put it to you that actually the promises of God are better than that. It's also something that we can sometimes as a church focuses, focus on the scripture promises of God. The scripture promises of God. The scriptures that tell us we have become a new creation in Christ. That God has well-being for us, He has shalom for us. And rely on these promises to solve themselves and to make themselves happen. There's ways in which we as a church can comfort ourselves on the promises of God, the positive scriptures of God, and wait for them to come to pass. I want to put it to you that if you look at James, James always saying, when you look at the word of God, don't just be inspired by the scriptures. But be a, not a hearer of the word, but also a, a doer, a doer of the word. And there's a way in which we as a church are called when we hear the word of God to receive the word of God. But that's only the start. If you receive the word of God and say, yes, God, amen, amen, amen. And don't enter into what God's invitation is, that is to work with Him so that this thing come to pass. Then what can happen is that as a church, we can be dreamers and not actually end up experiencing the substance of what God has for us. Yeah? And so, may I suggest to you that actually um, Peter's sermon answers that. And he focuses on the, focuses on the coming of the Spirit. I'd like to look at this, seeing these failed ways in which we can try to have transformation, but actually end up somewhere else and continue with what he was saying. Verse 4, and he testified, verse 40, and he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed this message were baptized. So they, so there, so there was a way in which Peter was saying, not only do you have to repent, you have to be baptized. And by, by saying that, he says, you have to save yourself from this corrupt generation. 
it's interesting the King, King James Version says it, says it this way. Save yourself from this untoward generation. How many of you have read that in King James Version? All right, yes. This untoward generation. Now, the word untoward is very interesting because the word untoward is not toward, right? Not forward, okay? Not forward. Toward, untoward means backwards. To, in the wrong direction, won't get you anywhere. And it also means twisted to such an extent that it is bent out of shape so that it always will go the wrong way. And what Peter was saying is this, you've got to understand this, you need to be saved from your untowardness. There's something about, about, about no matter how much you try your best to follow God and to bump, pump yourself up and all that, you are untoward. Your, your, your direction will always be not toward, into the opposite direction of toward. Does that make sense? Yes? Yes? Untoward means in the opposite direction of, or in a direction other than towards, forward. And so what Peter is basically saying is this, you need to save yourself from this. There's something inside you that's bent out of shape and you need to be saved from that. And for that to happen, you need to be baptized. Amen? You need to be baptized. Now, baptism is not just a ritual, but let's have a look at what, what, what he means when he says baptize. Turn with me to Romans and this will be our last place that we will look at. Romans chapter 6. And hopefully we are getting deeper into our problem. Chapter 5, he's talking about how when sin abounds, grace abounds. Okay, it says when sin abounds, grace abounds. You know that chapter 5, right? Romans chapter 5, yeah? Then verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul says, What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? Since grace abounds, when sin abounds, then we should sin boldly and not worry about it. Correct? So that's Paul's, Paul, Paul saying, yes, I can hear some of you saying, should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? What these people understood was that they've been forgiven. That the forgiveness of God is freely given to us. He's even given to those things that we forgot to confess. God's acceptance and His forgiveness at the expense of His own Son is total. Okay, But the logic is this. You, you can understand the logic. It says that then we should not worry then. We can just sin and not worry about grace. Because if sin, when sin abounds... Grace abounds even more. Correct? This is not a trick question. This is not a trick question, okay? Have any of you come across that thought? Have you? You're much better than me. For me, I filled with guilt. I was filled with guilt because of the fact that I sinned and I could not stop sinning. I could not overcome sin. I could not overcome my untowardness. No matter how much I desire to follow God and to make a New Year's resolution, I could not follow it. I found that my untowardness was always in, the, in spite of my... In fact, the more determined I was, the more sure I was that I wanted to, to follow God, the more I became untoward. 
towards the other way. And so it's easy to say, God will forgive me. The problem with that is that I continued to carry guilt, even though I knew that I was forgiven. I couldn't, I couldn't catch, I couldn't keep, wrap my, my, my heart, my emotions around God forgiving somebody who's completely reprobate in terms of his sin. I could not wrap myself around it. How could God forgive me when after I've just asked him forgiveness, I've just gone and done it again? And it's worse than, 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 than before. Have you ever experienced that? Have you experienced things that you can't overcome, a sin that you can't overcome, addiction that you can't overcome, a, a pattern of sin that you cannot overcome? And the Lord says you are forgiven. And you're forgiven. Okay. If you have common decency, you will say, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me, but I can't get rid of the guilt because I'm forgiven, but I'm not transformed. And here's the problem with most Christians. They can receive their forgiveness because we've been taught that, but we can't be changed. And so Paul basically says to those who are saying, well, I hope that, you know, sin will, as it abounds, grace will abound more. I think it'll be okay. And Paul says, how can you say that? If you're saying that, that means you have not been touched by the Holy Spirit. You haven't been born again. He says, what is, how can you say that? What does he say, actually? He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death? Therefore, we have been buried by him by baptism to death. So what Paul is saying is this, no, 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 no. It's not you've been forgiven, therefore you can do more sin. He says that, there is something more at stake, not, not just your forgiveness, but your transformation, that you become a new person. So the people who are asking that were people who received the forgiveness, but were not changed. Now you've got to understand in Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, they were these people wanting to be changed, not to be just forgiven, but to be changed. Forgiveness came from the, 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 the sacrifices of blood and all that. But they, the problem with them is not that they were not forgiven, that they were not changed. They were not experiencing the good of the Holy Spirit. They were not being changed. And what Paul is saying is this, what we are talking about here in Romans chapter 6 is not about being forgiven. We are talking about being changed. Therefore, when you ask the question, shall I continue to sin because I've been already being forgiven and graceful around? He says, you don't know what you're talking about. You're actually the wrong person talking. The person who's talking here right now is a person who has not been born again. Does that make sense? Because if you're born again, you will not ask that question. You just reveal who you are. You are a person who says you'll take the forgiveness, but the change has not happened. You're still untoward. You're still untoward. You have not been changed. That's the work of the Holy Spirit has not come into you. So Paul is saying, is this, no, actually that's a nonsensical, it's a nonsensical question. You don't ask a person who has been changed that kind, a person who has been changed does not ask that kind of question because that person wants wants to follow. They, they have a desire for God. Their heart has been miraculously transformed to such an extent they want to follow God. They want to do what God is. They have a certain godly repentance that's actually happening there. They have been changed. And what Paul's saying is, is when you've been baptized, what happened is this. 
all your flesh, your, the old person, was buried with Christ. When he was crucified, he crucified that, that nature of sin. He crucified that body of sin. Let's have a look at this. Because this is really important because unless we experience this, you'll be just somebody who's subscribing to church things, but finding that the church thing is not a real, it's not a real thing for you. So what he says is this. If we have been united, verse 5, with Him in a death like His, we will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that the old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. What Paul is saying is this. Do you know what Christ did on the cross? When He died on the cross, He took your own old man. He took your body of sin. He put it upon Himself. He killed it. That body of sin cannot live better by being pumped up. It cannot be live better by going to more Christian TED Talks. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen by being positive or being well well treated or being 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 being, being not judgmental that judgmentalized. No, it doesn't come that way. It's not enough. It's not enough that you are in a better environment in which there's more going for you or there's more positivity going for you. It's not enough. He's saying the only way is, is this. That old life of sin cannot be repaired. You have no power to do that. The more you try to live the Christian life with that old man, you will fail. And you'll ask silly questions like that. If, grace, if, if sin abounds, can grace bring heart? You will, you, if you had the new life, you would not be asking questions like that. You won't be thinking that way because your heart will be changed. And, and what he says is that, in the, uh, quoting from Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, I will take away that heart of stone and put in you a new heart in you, in you. But for that to happen, that old life must die. You cannot apply, you cannot apply Christian principles to your old life. Your old life cannot practice Christian principles. It cannot practice winning principles. It can up to a certain point. But not in a redemptive way. What Paul is saying is this. When Christ was crucified, He crucified death. That means He crucified not only the dying process, but He, de- he crucified that disease of sin. He not only he didn't, didn't just do very specific surgery and repair it. He actually killed it. In order for you and me to actually be birthed into the new life of Christ, you have to give your whole life up to Him and say, not only will, 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 do I need you to deal with my sin, but you have to deal with my desires as well. Now, the Christian is a person who has died, not a person who subscribes to the Bible. You can subscribe all you want, but if you have not died, then the, the changed life hasn't come in. You will have been forgiven, and you'll still be loved by God, but you will not experience the changed life. Does that make sense? And so, well will, well would those Jews say, then what can we do? What's, what must we do? Help, help, help. I know my untowardness. And, Paul, and, and, and Peter says, repent. Don't rely on all those things. And be baptized. Because when you're baptized, you are saying, I'm dead to myself. That is why a Christianity that purports to meet all your dreams for success or to be famous or to be good is no Christianity. It turns the truth of God on its head and subverts it 
and makes it untoward. That is why I was saying there were devout Jews who were not looking for that kind of stuff. They were looking for the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And so that will make sense for all of us. We go back a little bit because it's so thick with riches. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, that means you died into Christ, you gave up your whole life and said, Christ, you're my life. I don't live for myself. We're baptized into his death. That means just as he died, you somehow supernaturally died with him. That, that nature of sin, that body of sin died with him. It's not just a willful act that you did by saying, I'm, I give my whole life to Christ. When Christ died on the cross, he killed its power as well. Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christ died and took upon himself all our deathliness. Took upon himself. He was piled onto him. And when he and he was as he was buried, that's signified by us going under the water. He carried it all. He came up from the dead. He rose from the dead. He destroyed his power. And when he rose from the dead, our deathliness did not rise up with him. It was left in the water. Does it exist? It still exists. But his power has been broken. Amen? When you become a Christian, you say, I've died to myself. Not because I killed myself, but because I gave him up to him to to kill. To have his way. When he rose from the dead, I rose up with him. And so that our life that I have now is not mine. It's Jesus' life. When that happens, a miracle takes place. Not by virtue of my will or my decision, but because of what Christ has done. Not because I gave my life up to Him and I became a martyr and all that, but because of what Christ did on the cross. By the Holy Spirit. That's why they were looking for the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit could do that. Not my will, not my martyrdom, not my, 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 my holiness and all that. None of that. It's Christ's miraculous work that rose Him from the, that, 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 that raised Himself up from the dead and destroyed it. He had to kill it, you see. He had to take it with Him. It's almost as if you've seen these movies, right? The good guys fighting against a bad guy and they're at the edge of the cliff. The only way to destroy the, 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 the bad guy is how? Jump off the cliff with him, right? Correct? So he and the bad guy dies too. The only way the bad guy could be, could be destroyed is Christ jump off the cliff. Christ crucified it. Amen? Still with me? Good, 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 good. Because God has so much for us here. And so if we have been united, verse 5, with Him in death like His, we will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that the old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. Wow. And we might no longer be enslaved to Him. So for whoever has died is free from sin. Only those who have died why, why am I dead? Because Christ killed me. Not because I killed myself. Not because I mortified myself. But because Christ took upon himself my old flesh. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. Amen. 
you died with Christ, you will also live with him. We know that Christ, verse 9, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so there's a way in which what, what, what um, Paul is saying is this. When Christ died, he, he destroyed not only the spirit of physical death, but he destroyed every spirit of death that is including death in every, every, every sense of the word, every work of our disease untoward self. When he died, he not only destroyed that, that defeated death. That was the last one. That was the end of it. By, by destroying every spirit, principality, and every power that causes us to sin, he destroyed its power, its grip over us, whether it's drugs or lust or pornography or, um, or kleptomania or dishonesty or racist, race, race, racist attitudes. There are things that God has destroyed on the cross. He has destroyed it. When he says death was defeated, it means all those were also defeated. Does that make sense? All those different forms of death, not just physical death. So that when he died, actually died and gave up the ghost, he overcame, having done all. He overcame the last enemy, death. Romans chapter 8. And so now, because of that, he lives to God. I want to put it to you that the church of Jesus Christ, as in its inception, now live toward God. We live toward God. For Him. To please Him. Amen? Live towards God. We don't live towards other things, or ourselves, or our own guilt, or our own problems, or towards the past, or towards our own uh, self-actualization. We live towards God. So that Christianity is not a way in which we try to follow the good book so that we can have good for ourselves or well-being for ourselves. We follow and live towards God. Say, God, what do you want? And that's lived out in the church as well as in the world. Amen? <coughs> okay, we're going to finish it. <coughs> so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, and this is my last point, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies. That means, even though sin has been defeated and has been destroyed, its power has been destroyed, its existence is still there. That's why you still can feel tempted. That's why you can still feel all the temptations that a non-Christian will experience. It's there, but its power has been destroyed. It has died. So when God says sin has died, yeah, the old man has died, it doesn't mean that the old man is not there. It's there, but he is there. It has, its power has been broken. Amen? And every day, you live towards God. And that's why he says, don't let sin have dominion over you. Another part, he says, do not frustrate the grace of God. Do not frustrate the grace of God. What it means? It means... Okay, I'm going to tell you a story that really convicted me. But you must not tell anybody about this. So I'm really careful about my food. Careful about my food nowadays, you know. You know why? I'm really careful about my food, my eating. So I eat very little sugar. 
very little sugar. And my family is really good because they they really help me to eat in a holy way. But I must confess one night when everybody was supposed to be asleep, I was praying, okay? And Cindy came down and she saw next to me, I hate to say this. Yeah, she saw something that should not have been there. My stash. And I feel really convicted because she had done everything that she could to make sure that I had good food, Vitamix, all the rest of it. And I had no excuse. I was frustrating the grace of God. Don't tell anybody, okay? Just kidding. Tell, 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 tell away. I was frustrating the grace. Does that make sense? I did not need to actually eat those things, which will we will yet really remain remain unnamed. But I was frustrating the grace. And what came upon me was such a sense of sadness that after all that they had done for me. I went and ate that stupid cracker. That's what sin does. It frustrates the grace of God. You can still sin. It doesn't mean the grace the grace meant that the the box of crackers disappeared. It just meant that I had power over it but I could still frustrate the grace of God. So do not let sin have dominion over your mortal body. Amen? Do not let sin have, have dominion over you. Amen? But present yourselves. And so that's the next verse. Present. Every time you're being tempted, present yourself to God. And wait there until the grace flows. Many people, they don't present and wait. So the Temptation is coming, coming, coming. If you wait on the altar, the word is a word that's used for altar, altar sacrifice. You wait there until the grace of God comes and it consumes you. I guarantee you, if you are in, being tempted by sin, by any kind of uh, weakness, you just present first. The lack of presentation prevents you from having a place in which you can experience the fire of God giving you victory. Amen? Let us pray. Bless your name, Lord. Glory to your name. Bless your name, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I want to invite you to present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness, knowing full well that Christ has dealt the death blow upon the power 
and nature of our untowardness, the body of sin. You don't have to struggle against it. You just have to receive it, but live toward God. During worship today, I saw a plant with roots going into the ground. And I heard the Lord say, just go deeper. Because there were rocks and there was cement that was blocking growth to the left and the right. And I heard the Lord say, just go deeper. I just feel like the Lord is saying, when we go deeper, this side growth will break up the cement Things that we are dealing with, we know that the Lord would love to get out, but he's waiting for us to go deeper. Some of us want that transformation, and the Lord is letting us know today, your old soil is not enough. The Holy Spirit has caused us to have newness of life, newness of soil. So, God, we thank you right now. We are all bathing in new soil today because of what you've done, Jesus. And so, Lord, we say, yes, please take us deeper. Help us come to your word as you open it up and we see it like we never saw before. Let transformation flow like a wave, like a tsunami across this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Until we do see the cement around us, and other people's lives broken too, in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen. So we commit ourselves to you right now. In these last moments, we present ourselves to you. Every sin, we invite you to convict us in such a way that we will be transformed. Thank you, Lord. You did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Praise your name, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Sin has no dominion over us in this presenting place. Invite him into this, the altar to stay there until he begins to lift the burden of guilt, the burden of addiction from you. Sometimes we think we're going to die if we have to live without that thing or without that, or live without that sin. But you won't. You will enter into a new dimension where you won't even need it. You'll be free. You'll be outside of its gravitational pull. It can pull for all it wants, but the pull will not even touch you. Wait upon him right now. We welcome you. This is my desire to honor Lord, with all my heart, I worship you. All that within me, I give you praise. 
I give you praise. All that I adore is in you. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, have your way in me. To me, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you.